Welcome to the Calvary Baltimore Weekly Sermon. Calvary meets in the Joppa-Falston area between Baltimore and Bel Air, and our pastor is Josh Plantholt. Come join us on a Sunday. Our service info is at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. And now, here's this week's teaching. Well, I'd like to call your attention this morning to the 17th chapter of Matthew. Curveball. We will be picking up at verse 24. For those of you with Bibles, we will be going into chapter 18. For those of you on electronic devices, you're going to have to hit next after we get to the end. <clears throat> but we will keep reading into 18. Um, let's dive. Now let's, let's pray one more time. God, we... We ask that you would move mightily today. I have absolutely no doubt you have a word for your people. You instruct us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. And so Satan would love nothing more than for us to get nothing today. God, we ask that you may bind the enemy, (laughs) you may break strongholds, and you may dash anything in us that may be an obstacle. Please, God, help us to receive your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Matthew 17, 24. When they came to Capernaum, the tax collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher pay the tax? This tax was a temple tax, and it paid for the sacrificial animals and uh, the, the things that ran the daily functions of the temple general expense fund. Uh, it was a tax given early in uh, the from uh, Moses, uh, and it continued and it it morphed and transformed over the ages. But it seems to be a good tax. And these tax collectors came to Peter and asked if Jesus pays the tax. I find that interesting. They don't go to Jesus and ask him. But anyways. There doesn't seem to be any record of Jesus paying this tax before. And if you notice, what does Peter immediately say? Oh, yes, definitely. Jesus pays the tax. No problem. Uh, Has Peter seen Jesus pay these taxes before? Or is Peter being Peter and just coming right to Jesus' defense blindly? Uh, that, that seems to be the way that I read it. Oh, yes, Jesus, is the, he pays the most taxes out of anyone who's ever paid taxes. Uh, either way, I love Peter here. Uh, and then... And then uh, it says, does your teacher not pay the tax? He says, yes. And when he came into the house, I love this. So Peter's having the discussion with the tax collector. He goes, oh, yes, Jesus pays the tax. Peter comes into the house and Jesus spoke to him first saying, Simon, what do you think? You ever seen like a kid try to sneak into the house at night and the parents are just waiting there? Did you have fun? You know, Uh, Simon, what do you think? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. So Jesus, as is God's way, makes this a teaching moment. And Jesus essentially tells Peter, Peter, Jesus is the child of God. Jesus doesn't need to pay the tax. Because the king doesn't need taxes from the kids. He gets it from others. So, of course, won't this also apply to us believers 
as we are now children of God? Oh, well, of course. So this also then applies to Peter. Peter is a child of God and won't need to pay the tax either. In faith, believers are children of the king, and not only the king, the king of kings. And do kings place mandatory taxes on their own children? Well, of course not. And so the sons are free from the obligated temple tax. Now listen to this, verse 27. However, Jesus says, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. You imagine Peter listening to this going, uh, okay. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. What a strange story. And it was so strange, I had to read it today. The tax collectors come to Peter because they want Jesus' money. Jesus talks to Peter and says they are under no obligation to give the money. Jesus then says, in order to not offend anyone, decides to give the money anyways, which Jesus doesn't seem to mind offending anyone in the Bible, so what's this about? So then he has Peter go fishing for money, and Peter pulls money out of a fish's mouth and pays the tax for Jesus and for Peter. So what's happening here? First, the fish. If Jesus wanted to free, wanted free money, aren't there a thousand other ways he could have gotten this money? There could have been an anonymous donor. Peter could, Jesus could have done an Oprah moment. Peter, look in your pocket. You know, oh, it's a pile of rubies. You know, whatever. Uh, they could have found money under a rock. Go dig under this tree. Of course, you know, and, and yet... Who's ever heard of money being stored in a fish's mouth? Money buried or appearing in pockets or given by an anonymous donor? Those things make sense because money can be found in those places. Money are not typically found in, in, in the side of fish. So as God's people, we are to read this story and not conclude, well, weird things happen back in Bible times, not anymore. If you read your Bible and that's what you take away, you're not aware of what Maria so aptly said, that God is the God of today. He is present. He is here. Moses says to God, who shall I tell the people who sent me? I am. He's ever present through all ages, from age into ages, generation, uh, Revelation says. So we, we can't conclude this is just the weird stuff that used to happen in the Bible. So this story is so out of the ordinary, we, we should pause and wonder what Jesus is saying. Because obviously, whatever he's saying, Jesus is making some sort of a statement. And he is. You see, often in the scriptures, the sea and fish are associated with the Gentiles. The great fish in Jonah chapter 2 that swallows Jonah represents the Assyrian Empire consuming Israel. Nebuchadnezzar is described as a great sea monster in Jeremiah 51.34. And Pharaoh is described as a great sea monster in Ezekiel 29.1-8. In the Bible, the sea and fish can be associated with the Gentiles. And I'm thinking this is why uh, when Jesus appeared to the disciples after his, his resurrection, do you remember Jesus is cooking a meal on the beach? Do you remember what he was cooking? Fish! He cooked fish. I think this was, Peter was to eat these fish as a sign of incorporating the Gentiles into the body, uh, the Jewish body here. Listen to Isaiah 60. This is, this is great. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. 
But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then listen to this. Then you shall see, uh, see and be radiant. Your hearts shall uh, thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Jesus in Isaiah 60 equates the wealth of the nations and the wealth of the sea is the same thing. The wealth of the sea is the wealth of the Gentiles. Now, Jesus says that the sons don't need to pay the tax, but then he has the fish pay the tax. And does this work if we look at fish as Gentiles? Well, it does. Because there are many places in the scriptures, like Haggai 2.7, that describe the Gentile nations coming and bringing their treasures to the temple. And think about it. Almost immediately upon Jesus' arrival, uh, we, we, we see this. What does Jesus call himself? The temple of the Lord. Well, when Jesus was born, who visited him? The Gentile kings, the wise men. Bearing gold and frankincense and myrrh, bearing gifts. Jesus' body was the new temple. And and when believers are born again, we are incorporated into that body, the body of Christ. We are the new temple of the Lord. So let's pull this all together. Peter and the apostles did not have a lot of money. They were under Rome and tax, and they were fishermen. How much money do you hear fishermen having? They were broke people. And so they didn't have a lot of money, but God was super, was, was going to supernaturally take care of them through the provisions of the Gentiles. And if anyone knows anything about church history, this is immediately almost what happens upon Jesus's ascension. The Gentiles started to be incorporated into the church, and they were largely the financial support to the new temple, to the body of Christ. Now, there's a twist here in that the Gentiles will come with their treasures and then be adopted as sons and daughters into the body of Christ. What's the first thing Jesus tells Peter? Peter, come with me and I will make you a fisher of men. Not so that they can stay fish and different. No, he wanted the fish people into the body of Christ. So the gent, this was a, I, I cannot help but to think when Peter reflected on this way back after Jesus had passed, God was going to bring people into his sphere that were going to help this thing go. And slowly, these, these fish were going to become family. These were the fish that he was going to fish out and become part of the apostles, the body. Now, secondly, the offense. Jesus says, however, not to give offense to them. Jesus says that they didn't need to pay the tax, but he then paid the tax in order to not offend the tax collector. So Jesus, what we have to see is Jesus not obligated to pay the tax, but he pays the tax anyways, which tells us that Jesus is willing to forego his honor. He's willing to forego his rights as the son of God in order to not offend two tax collectors. Now we should ask ourselves, because Jesus doesn't mind offending the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the hypocrites. He does it all the time. And so why here does Jesus uh, miraculously avoid giving offense? Well, it is with this question in mind, we should, we should all come to this passage and go, why is Jesus not wanting to offend anybody here? Now, when we go, we're going to go into to chapter 18 now. Jesus is going to give us a series of teachings that tell us why. 
He's going he's gonna to answer these questions. And so the story of the fish and, and what we're about to read should be read in light of each other on why God's people, why Jesus says the Son of God, worked so hard to not offend certain people. Uh, does anyone have a, have a heading on top of chapter 18 for what the next section's called? Who is the greatest? <laughs> so notice, Jesus is giving up honor as the Son of God, while at the same time, the disciples are seeking it. They're trying to figure out who's going to be the greatest sons of God, while Jesus is letting go of all of his status as a son of God. So there's a teaching moment here. So verse 18, verse 1. At that time, do you see they're connected? The disciples came, uh, came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, first of all, whenever you see that in the Bible, pay attention. Uh, truly in scripture, Jesus is saying, you all better listen. Truly I say to you, unless you uh, turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You notice there's that word turn there. Whatever direction they're going, they need to turn around. They need to repent from. They need to stop seeking this sort of greatness. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that awesome? You don't see that on a lot of inspirational posters, you know. Be like a child. Join the Marines. You know, you don't see any uh, leader of men. Be a kid. Uh... If Jesus is willing to humble himself, then Jesus' people need to humble themselves and become like little children. Now, we need to be careful here because there are so many bad teachings on this section of Scripture. A lot of people like to point out the innocence of children here. The pressure, we need to be like little kids and innocent and trustworthy and eager, but... And all of that sounds great. It preaches wonderful. I give a great, I mean, I'd be wrong, but I give a great teaching on that. But Jesus is not describing the heart of children, but the status of children. They're the lowest rung on the human totem pole. <laughs> this morning, I sat down with my kid, uh, with my Nathan, he's six, and I said, Who, who's in charge of the house? And he goes, Daddy. I said, that's right. Uh, I said, who's next? And he says, um, mommy. I said, uh-huh. I said, who's at the bottom of the, who makes all the decisions? He goes, uh, me and Caleb. I go, yeah. <laughs> he knew. He knew. Now, you know, when he's screaming at three in the morning, he's a tyrant. But, you know, that, uh, as far as paying the taxes and making the money and feeding everybody, keeping everyone alive, last on the list. So Jesus is not describing the heart of children, but the status of children, the, 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 the last ones in charge. If my six-year-old's in charge, we all have diabetes in a month. <laughs> There's a reason children aren't running countries or economies. There's a reason they're not generals. Uh, and, and so as God's people, we, we must become in many ways like children. We must be willing to be last. We must be willing to be overlooked. We must be humble as our Lord was humble. Now, verse 5, let's keep reading. Whoever receives, what, uh, receives one such child in my name receives me. 
Now, God's people are not only to become lowly, but they are to embrace the lowly. You know, people who want to be great, one of the first things they do is try to surround themselves with important people. They're important by association. Jesus is saying, oh, that's not the path to greatness. You see, the disciples not only wanted to be great, but they wanted to be associated with greatness. They wanted the seat next to Father Abraham. Do you remember at one point they were arguing? One wanted to sit on Jesus' left side and the right side. And Jesus goes, you have no idea what you're asking as he was heading to the cross. You want to be great? Okay, well, you could each have a side next to me on these, on these trees. Uh, <laughs> they, they wanted seats in high places next to high important people. But Jesus inverts this like he does in Luke 14. And Jesus is saying, we need to receive and take those who are of low status. When you want to invite someone to your house, invite someone with no money. Invite those who can't pay you back, who have no power, who who could never pay back your kindness. Who was Jesus' table constantly filled with? Prostitutes, tax collectors, drunks. That's who he surrounded himself with because they could never pay him back and they were the most grateful people. Now verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone, a rock, fastened, tied around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Whoa, isn't that one terrifying? Jesus is saying our spiritual state is directly reflective of how we treat the unimportant. How you treat that person who drives you crazy is directly reflective of your spiritual state before God. Your greatness. Will we embrace the most lowly of society? Because that's what a child of God does. Because that's what God did. Verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus says temptations are necessary. You ever have a trial start to rear up and go, oh God, I don't want anything bad to happen to me. You can't. I claim nothing bad happens to me. Jesus says they're necessary. You're welcome. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Interesting, what we're about to read in verses 8 through 10 are nearly identical to Jesus' teachings of adultery on the Sermon on the Mount. Let's keep reading, verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Here's what Jesus is saying. It would be better to chop off your own hands and feet than to lead others into temptation. Now, again, this is talking about a lowly status. There's a theme emerging over and over and over again. Jesus is warning us that the high, that the leaders are in a position to lead others to temptation. So you better tread carefully for what you desire. And Jesus is not just warning us on personal sins here. He's also warning us to not be the reason that other people sin. For example, if my kids hear me curse, now I don't curse, I'm thankful for that. Uh, But if I did, 
My kids think, well, if dad curses, so can I. If mom screams and yells when she's frustrated, junior's going to think, oh, so can I. Do you see? And this involves language, anger, greed, gossip. <laughs> there are a hundred ways that this works out. With any position of authority or influence, being a parent, being an employer, having money and status or working with people. You notice in some circles, being the only one who's not on drugs makes you the hero of, of, the, of the friends group. Or being able to pay your bills, everyone starts looking to this person like, how did you do that? You know, we're all in spheres of some influence. And so whether we like it or not, that's our lot. And temptation can come from us. And so we must be on guard to make sure that we're not influencing others to do evil. And so God's people, we need to be on guard against this, even if that means cutting off our own hands and feet. We must do everything in our power to not be a stumbling block to others, to perpetuate sin in our circles. Jesus says it would be better to tie a rock around your neck and go swimming than to lead others in this sort of fashion. Now, Jesus, with this child in their midst, this is what he says, verse 10. See that you do not despise kota fran eo, meaning to think little of, to look down on. See that you do not look down upon one of these little ones. Now, it's not just children, remember? It's the lowly. It's the humble. It's the unimportant. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? So according to Jesus, each sheep is as important to the shepherd as any other sheep. Do you see that? The shepherd does not only go after good sheep that run away. <laughs> he goes after the sheep that run away. He pursues any of the one hundred. Verse 13 and if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And the story ends with Jesus essentially saying that God, heaven, desires the little ones, the humble, the poor in spirit, the meek, the gentle, the lowly in heart. That God desires these kinds of people. Every, uh, I am bombarded. I'm not so much anymore because I'm like, I don't even check my email. So if you email me, I'm sorry. I'm very bad with it. But I just got so sick of like how to grow a professional, you know, commando Christian team. And it's like, how to identify talent. And, you know, Jesus looked for the most dysfunctional people. <laughs> It's so counterintuitive to the way Christ did things. Uh, and so he ends by saying, God wants the rejects. He wants the looked over, the passed over, the sneezed over. <laughs> he wants those people. And that's today's text. Can you, you all are used to me doing one or two verses a Sunday. This was something else. Uh, I want to talk about two things today. Tyranny and love. 
First, tyranny, and this is fun. There is nothing wrong with what these tax collectors are doing. If what they were doing was a sin, Jesus paying the tax would be a sin, wouldn't it? Yeah, Jesus pays the tax, so the, 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 the tax is not inherently sinful. Yet Jesus says that he doesn't need to pay the tax, and yet Jesus pays it anyways. And he pays the tax because the tax collectors would not understand why Jesus wouldn't pay the tax. They had no idea that the temple wasn't going to be around in 30 years. They didn't know this. They didn't know that God was building the body of Christ in believers. There wasn't the time for that. And so in order to not offend these people who are doing a good thing, because the temple needed to operate under the old covenant, of course, Jesus then bent over backwards to make sure that he didn't offend them. Now, there is a term I originally heard from R.C. Sproul. Uh, He used it years ago called the tyranny of the weaker brother. And I want to read the passage to you that, that, that his sermon on that came from. If you ever want to re- listen to it, it is killer. Um, it's 1 Corinthians 8.4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, the, that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there, many be, uh, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet as for, uh, for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if, if we do not eat, and no better if we do. But, if we, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have the knowledge, eating uh, is an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the the brother for, for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. There's too weak there. Your sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. God, I hope no one in here has that problem. Lest I make my brother stumble. You know, you may need to find another church if that's your problem. I don't, I, I, you know, I don't see me giving up that one. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I'm mostly kidding. I don't want to. Uh, in the first century... In Gentile cities, meat would be offered to idols, and then sometimes that food would be given away or auctioned off or sold. And in Corinth, there was a group of believers who knew those idols were nothing. Sure, pray over the meat. If it comes at a discount, I don't care. So they saw cheap meat, filet for $2 a pound. I'm in. You know, they, they were there. But in Corinth, there was some converted Gentile believers there who used to pray over that meat and worship over these meat sacrifices. And so when someone came to the church potluck with a pile of cheap ribeyes, their consciences were disturbed because they had associated that with idol worship, with their idol worship. 
And it really bothered them. And so Paul, very much like Jesus in today's passage says, there's nothing wrong with eat meat sacrificed to idols and prayed over. But if it causes offense, then don't eat the meat around them. And this is what is called tyranny of the weaker brother. To where a brother or sister in Christ can have their consciences disturbed. Is that me? Someone just started playing music on my phone. Isn't that weird? Okay. Tyranny of the weaker brother. Uh, it was reggae, too. I've never heard it. It sounded good, though. Uh, <laughs> you got good taste, whoever's messing with me. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, where am I? Oh, so the stronger brother, out of their own maturity, they're willing to go the extra mile to help, as Paul would call, the weaker brother, to help the one who stumbles easily. Now, back to today's text. Did you see all through today's passage that Jesus is constantly instructing and encouraging his people to forgo their own rights or to humble themselves or to desire lowliness and not status and honor? But Jesus is not asking us to do something, again, that he did not do himself. If the temple text here is going to cause offense, he will go the extra mile to help these tax collectors in their weakness, in their lack of understanding. Jesus is showing us today what a mature faith looks like. He's showing us that the mature in the faith need to be very gentle and very charitable with the weaker brother and sister. For example, if there's a new believer they just got saved, and I love new believers when they get saved. They, they are 95% passion and 5% understanding, but they are like ready to go, and I love it. And so if you're with a new believer, they just got saved. But, but sometimes, you know, all of us, you know when God saved you, he pulled you out of a whole pile of mud and filth. It just takes a while to rinse that off. <laughs> You know, and so you have people that come into the church, they get saved, but they struggle with addictions. Or they get saved and they struggle with anger because their father was a drunk and angry and screamed. And when they get mad, they just want to scream and hit something. It's just in them. And so they struggle. They're like, God, I'm saved. I have the Holy Spirit, but I just want to punch someone in the face. And so it takes time to rinse that off. Now listen, as the mature, there's a sense of tyranny there. Because now we're around short-fused people. <laughs> and so we need to be extra gentle with the crazy person. We need to be extra sensitive knowing you know, that they could just lose their mind at any second. And so the mature to the degree should be willing to go the extra mile for these weak people. For, for, the, for the new, the, the, the weak in the faith and help them along. And to mature them and to show them a better way. Or if two sisters go out to dinner and one sister has a problem with alcohol, as to not give offense or a stumbling block, and of course, if it is a stumbling block, it may not be, uh, then the mature sister shouldn't start the meal off with some shots of tequila. You know, there should be some wisdom involved. <laughs> you should be willing to go the extra mile for the sake of the gospel, to help the weaker brother. 
And this is what Jesus is showing us today. We have to be willing to forgo our rights if it will help someone understand and come closer to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, as we think about the stronger brother, going the extra mile for the weaker brother, it's easy for us in our sin to assume that we're always the weaker, the stronger brother. We're the stronger sisters. We're, we're the strong ones, and everyone else is just weak, you know. And it's easy to go that route. The disciples went that route. But certainly we must recognize that we are the weaker brother. We are the weaker sisters, and Christ was the stronger brother. And we must think about what he went through for us in our weakness in our shallowness, in our messed up stuff that he pulled us out of. The Apostle Paul said this in Philippians 2.5, Having this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Boy, I want to preach that now. We've got to keep moving. Many scholars think that this reading from Philippians 2 was actually an ancient hymn sung in the early church. Isn't that cool? It may be one of our most ancient songs in the New Testament church. And notice what they sing of. Of course, they sing, sing of the exalted Christ as Lord above all. But that exaltation comes from two things. Jesus' incarnation and his death on the cross. Year over year, I grow more and more interested in church history. I love church history. I love everything about it. I'm getting increasingly more boring as a person. I just want to read history all the time. And one period of church history that I love is the first few hundred years after Jesus died. I want to know what the guys who knew Jesus' people did. That's just fascinating to me. And over the years, reading the ancient church fathers, I've noticed how frequently they would speak of the Incarnation. You can hardly get through, uh, through an ancient church father teaching without coming to some form the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, when you read the early church fathers, they often, again, we hear it more, we hear it more than today. They put again a great deal, again, on the incarnation, which is the birth of Jesus. And as we reflect upon this ancient hymn, isn't this, isn't this exactly what they sing of in Psalm 2? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Loved ones, God cannot die. <laughs> But if he takes on human flesh, he can. Because human flesh is weak enough to die. And so the story of the cross begins at the babe born and placed in a manger. 
The birth of Jesus Christ is the beginning of the cross story. The cross, our victory, began at Bethlehem. Which is why when Jesus was born, the angels filled the sky and burst into praise. Not because something good would happen through this child, but that peace had already come. Not peace and goodwill may come, has come. It's come to God's people that the work of salvation had already begun since the arrival of the Christ child. That Jesus stepped off his throne and descended down to earth and went above and beyond for the weaker vessel. For us. So that the weaker vessel may be saved and strengthened. Could we save ourselves? We're too weak. Would you, without the power of the Holy Spirit, be able to have any victory over any of your sins? Of course not. In fact, I think this is one of the reasons. You ever try to beat a sin for a few days, weeks, years, months, decades? You can't beat it. And then all of a sudden you bring God into the picture and it's done. It's God showing you your weakness. We need the victory of the stronger brother. Jesus, who was absolutely perfect and absolutely sinless, a God, and he came down in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him who, who, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus willingly came under the tyranny of the weaker brother so that the weaker brother may become strong, so that may, we may become the righteousness of God. Loved ones, that there's something that we all have to grasp. Jesus, the stronger brother, died not only to save you from certain destruction. Well, we have to change our thinking a little bit if we're stuck here. We can look at what Jesus did for us as only a future hope, as only a future promise. Jesus died for me so that one day when I die, I'll be saved. But that's not how the Bible, that's not how God talks about your salvation. When Jesus talks about you being saved, he talks about you presently receiving the good news. You're saved now. It's as if you're already in heaven, in in heavenly places now. God looks at you as a child or daughter of God now. And so, yes, Jesus died so that we may enter with him into paradise, but Jesus also died so that we may walk with him in this world now. And we may mature into his Christ-likeness now. Understand that Jesus' sacrifice, he, he sacrificed his own life so that we, the weaker brother, may become strong. God does not want you staying weak forever. <laughs> he does not want you to stay in a spiritual babes forever. He doesn't want us, as Paul would say, drinking milk forever. He wants us to grow. You have sin in your life. He doesn't want that sin in your life, and he's given you the power to overcome that sin in your life through the power of his Holy Spirit. And he did that so that you wouldn't stay stuck. (laughs) He wants you to grow. And this is strength to Jesus. This is greatness to God. This is might in the kingdom of heaven. We are so backwards in thinking greatness is being tall and proud and strong. It's the story of Saul and David. The the people wanted a man who was a foot taller than everyone else and a beautiful head of hair and spoke well and can throw a spear. And God wanted the little shepherd boy covered in sheep poop and his own father overlooked him. He goes, ah, there's the king. (laughs) 
Greatness to God, strength to God, are those who are willing, like Jesus, to be made low for the good of others. That those who are willing to forego their, to give their honor and their status and their rights away for the good of other people's souls, that is greatness to God because that is Christ-likeness. Because that is what Jesus did from his birth. (laughs) And that's what he did during his ministry. You see, the disciples, they wanted to be great. They wanted to be in high places. They fought over who was better. (laughs) And Jesus is essentially saying today's passage, no, 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 no. It's all wrong. A person is not great by what other people think about them. By what a person's bank account is. Or what kind of dinners they get invited to. A person's greatness or better status is in what God thinks about them. It's how Christ-like they are. And someone great in God's kingdom, a faithful servant of the king, a mighty brother of the king, are not the proud, but those who make themselves low and weak and humble themselves for the good of others. Jesus described himself only once in the gospel in two ways. He gave himself two attributes. He called himself gentle and lowly in heart. That's what God, you want to know what Jesus was like? He was gentle and he was lowly in heart. When we look at him in Revelation, he has eyes that are literally on fire, like laser beams. And yet he takes on human flesh and becomes the lowest of us. Because according to God Almighty, that made him the greatest of us. And in today's reading and all through the Bible, Jesus shows us his greatness through humility, through service, through forgoing his honor and rights. And we have to imagine, Jesus was next to the Father on the throne above all thrones. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. And then he becomes a little baby, pooping in a diaper. He's got to get cleaned off. Born of a virgin, a poor virgin, a poor little country bumpkin girl, to a father who was a stonemason, carpenter, just a blue-collar, calloused-hand man. And then when he was born, he was placed in a food trough. (laughs) Itchy hay. He then lived healing the sick and having no home and going without food and washing dirty, nasty, crusty feet and then bleeding to death on a cross. No one in history had made themselves lower than Jesus Christ because no one has ever come from such a high estate. But yet our stronger vessel, our brother, he still came and served and loved and was gentle with ignorant, stubborn, weak humanity and was eventually killed by the very people he was serving. You ever get taken advantage of? Jesus never met one person who didn't take advantage of him. And yet he loved every single one. And when Jesus died and ascended up into heaven, where did he go? He took place at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because Revelation told us because he was considered worthy. According to God Almighty, worthiness and righteousness and greatness is when God's people act like God. 
And how did God in human flesh act? He lowered himself for the good of others. And as we grow in godliness and as we grow in maturity and as God takes us from the weaker brother and sister into being the stronger brother and sister, we need to act more like Christ and do everything we can to help the weaker brothers and sisters around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your book. We thank you for your verilies, your truths. God, we pray that you help us to seek the path of godly faithfulness. God, we do want to be great in your eyes. But that is not seeking the approval of man. That is living for the approval of one. (laughs) That is you, our Lord and our King. God, we pray that you help us to be servants of all, not punching bags, not human pinatas, but... (laughs) We we do pray that you would so conform us, Holy Spirit, into the image of the Son. Father, it delights you to see faithfulness. Help us to be faithful. It so delights you to see people love greatly. Help us to love greatly. God, you, you speak so often about the fall that is coming to the proud. Help us to not be puffed up with blind pride. God, it profits us nothing if the whole world speaks well of us, but you do not think well of us. Help us to be your children, God, who are faithful and who you adore. Help us to serve as you serve, love as you love. God, we pray that if anyone here needs special prayer, that they may go to the prayer team off to the side here. Let them them pray. Do not let them be afraid to be weak and to cry little booger face. It's okay. God, uh, you desire weakness in your people. And God, at the same time, you also desire maturity. And so mature us in our servanthood and mature us in our humility. We do pray. And God, we pray that you may open a door this week that we may serve you in this capacity this week. Open up an opportunity for us, God, to, to go a little extra mile for a weaker vessel somewhere all for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. I love you guys. Let's stand and worship. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Calvary Baltimore. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email with your questions, prayer requests, or just to say hi. Our email address is calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to support the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. And if you're in the area, stop by on a Sunday morning. For directions and service times, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. If you can't be here in person, we also live stream on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Until next time, as Pastor Josh says, study the Word to live the Word to share the word and join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Weekly Sermon.